giving to those who ask of you, and giving your cloak when they sue you for your shirt. I want to mention some things that it doesn't mean to turn the other cheek. This does not mean that we would never make a defense against any insult or slander. There are times when, as believers, we would gently confront someone who continually hurls insults. So turning the other cheek doesn't ever mean that a Christian can't say, that's wrong. And you shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't mean that at all. And particularly in legal, legal senses as well. Because Jesus himself, and again, we want to make sure that we don't make Scripture say things it doesn't say. Let it say what it says. But it doesn't contradict other Scripture. Jesus himself did not always, as it were, turn the other cheek in the definition of just giving in whenever anything wrong was done to him. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 38 through 42, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. We continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, and continue to be challenged by the dangerous and difficult sayings of Jesus. In fact, that's most of what Jesus said. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Please be seated. <clears throat> On May 30th, 1806, President Andrew Jackson, excuse me, future President Andrew Jackson, killed a man who accused him of cheating on a horse race bet and then insulted his wife, Rachel. Contemporaries describe Jackson, who had already served in Tennessee's Senate and was practicing law at the time of the duel, as argumentative, physically violent, and fond of dueling to solve conflicts. Estimates of the number of duels in which Jackson participated range from 5 to 100. Jackson and Dickinson were rival horse breeders and southern plantation owners with a long-standing hatred of each other. Dickinson accused Jackson of reneging on a horse bet, calling Jackson a coward and an equivocator. Dickinson also called Rachel Jackson a bigamist. Rachel had married Jackson, not knowing her first husband had failed to finalize their divorce. After the insult to Rachel and a statement published in the National Review in which Dickinson called Jackson, Jackson a worthless scoundrel and again a coward, Jackson challenged Dickinson to a duel. During the duel, Jackson shot and killed Dickinson. Now, Jackson was not persecuted for murder. The duel had very little effect on his successful campaign for presidency in 1829. Many American men in the early 1800s, particularly in the South, viewed dueling as a time-honored tradition. In fact, in 1804, Thomas Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr, had also avoided murder charges after killing former Treasury Secretary and founding father Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Now, 
Perhaps you can identify with Andrew Jackson just a bit. In fact, I think we all can. And if I know my congregation well, uh, perhaps there were some of you who, when I read about Jackson, you're like, yeah, there's a real man. Well, I think for sure the desire to defend our honor and to strike back against those who insult us is rooted deep within our nature. This desire is, in fact, not without some biblical justification. Doesn't the book of James say that we are not to curse men because they have been made in the image of God? It is an affront to his handiwork. Yet, for the citizens of the kingdom of God, this deep-seated natural response to personal insult must be replaced with a desire to sacrifice our right to be treated well in order to present a Christ-like example to a world that is lost in darkness and personal revenge. What we'll see this morning as we consider what it means to turn the other cheek is that when we are confident of the love and grace and justice of God and desirous of presenting a picture of Christ to the world, we then have the spiritual resources necessary to respond to insult with loving, joyful sacrifice. Again, when we are confident of the love and grace and justice of God on our behalf and when we are passionate about presenting a picture of Christ to a dying world, then we will have the spiritual resources necessary to respond to insult with loving, joyful sacrifice. Said even more simply, confidence in God's love, grace, and justice enables us to turn the other cheek. Now, in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we are in the portion where Jesus is challenging the citizens of the kingdom to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says that murder really stems from anger. Adultery actually stems from lust. Divorce is a matter of covenant faithfulness, promises made, and that vows made to anyone any, at any time are actually made, heard, and witnessed by a holy God. And now we have turned to the fifth of these examples of righteousness that needs to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, and it has to do with our response to personal insult and injury where we are personally affronted in some way, how will we respond? And Jesus takes this head on. Now, we looked last week at the fact that he begins with the really the perversion of an Old Testament principle. When he says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting directly from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, other places. And yet by saying, you have heard that it was said, he is really alluding to the perversion of that Old Testament principle by the teaching of the religious leaders, and most certainly the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. And the principle itself, the idea of an eye for an eye, we looked at last week, is not some kind of vindictive, revengeful principle that is, is allowed by God. Instead, we saw that this principle is sometimes called lex talionis, the law of retribution or just retribution. It is, in fact, a just law. It means that the punishment must match the crime. This is the foundation of all of our justice system. There needs to be punishment for crimes, and those punishments must not exceed the weightiness of the crime, but they must also not come short of the weightiness of the crime. And any good justice system will employ this principle. And we are thankful that in many ways our justice system still does this. Most places in the world, this has never been the case and is not the case today. It is a just law. It is also a merciful law. That is, it regulates the natural propensity of the human heart to seek retribution beyond the nature of the offense. This is who we are. If we can get away with it and someone harms us, we will harm them outside the measure or great in greater measure than we've been harmed. We will get more than our pound of flesh, as it were. We will seek to get as much as we can. We are all like Lamech. I will be avenged 77 times. 
because I am worth that much. That's the nature of our hearts. And so the law of an eye for an eye keeps us from that kind of so-called justice. And this is also a preventative law. It restrained criminal acts through swift, sufficient punishment. Jesus is not overturning this law. He is instead overturning the Pharisees' misunderstanding of it. In fact, they had turned it on its head. Instead of it being a law to regulate societal justice, they had in fact said, well, it's not so important that it gets enacted in society eye for an eye. What you need to do is do this personally. What was meant to be a law to govern society was turned into a law to govern personal relationship, and that's deadly. Because when you want to get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a personal relationship, you end up what? Nursing grudges sometimes all your life. You end up longing for personal revenge, and you seek to do that, causing great harm. And so this is how the Pharisees had perverted it. And we looked at the fact that this was certainly true as evidenced by the Pharisees' response to whom? Jesus. He is constantly affronting them. He is constantly coming against them. Now, not in an evil way, but in a right way. And yet, what is their response? They are viewing that, well, we can harbor, they did harbor a grudge against Jesus. They wanted personal revenge, and they got it. So they are, they are living embodiment of the false putting into practice of this principle that is seeking personal revenge. And so then we turn to Jesus' teaching. And in verse 39... Jesus says, but I say to you, that is Jesus bringing the fulfillment of the New Testament application of the Old Testament principle, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. Now, as I mentioned last week, it seems best to understand Jesus as presenting four examples of kingdom responses to actions or requests which are, or at least seem to be, unjust and unfair. And that's found with turn the other cheek, with give your coat, not only your shirt, with go an extra mile, and with give to those who ask and lend to those who want to borrow. And yet I would like to change a bit, adjust a bit, after some further reflection on on this particular text, and particularly the last instance, that is where Jesus says, give to him who asks of you. Last week I said I really felt like verse 39 was one whole example, then 40, 41, and 42. But as I look at it again, as I studied it this week, I believe that when Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, that that covers all four examples. So I'll break it up there. Now, the reason I'd wrestled with that is because the fourth example doesn't appear to be something evil. There's just someone asking you for for money. And yet, in studying it, and this will be a couple weeks before we get here, it seems that that really what's going on there is an abuse of the Old Testament lending laws. It was a commandment that if someone asked, you had to give. So people were abusing those laws, saying, you got to give to me. The Old Testament says so. And so I think even there, speaking of an evil person or a person with evil intent. So all the things that we mentioned last week then really become not, not specific only to turning the other cheek, but they really become an overview of how we respond in every one of these situations. When we are personally insulted, as we'll see this morning, when someone brings a legal suit unjustly or seeks to take in an unjust measure from us legally, when the government oppresses us in, in verse 40, and then when we are... Uh, or verse 41, and then when someone tries to to exact out of us charity with unjust motives. In all of these ways, the general principle is this, don't resist an evil person. And that, of course, is challenging to us. Like, what in the world does that mean? And we talked about that last week, right? Dealing with, and so now, number one on your outline is dealing with evil people in general, And then Jesus gives these four specific examples. We won't, I'm just going to mention those things I mentioned before. That is, don't resist is first and foremost a heart attitude. It is always the heart attitude we have towards those who do wrong. The specifics of how we respond to evildoers depends on the nature of the situation. If it's a governmental issue, if it's a church issue, 
There are certain things that we will do to resist an evil person, but that is functionally and specifically according to biblical principles, but always our heart attitude will be one of grace. It will be one of love towards them, even when we are meeting out a particular punishment, if that's necessary. So first and foremost, Jesus is speaking when he says, don't resist. The word is don't set yourself against someone. We tend to always view that as as kind of a physical consequence. I'll oppose you, but it's a hard attitude. I'm not going to see you as my enemy, even if you've harmed me, and even if I'm going to bring some result from that sin against you. I'm not going to hate you in my heart. That's the idea of resisting here. And the principles we've been discussing here most directly relate to the situations in which evil people harm us directly. These are not the principles of societal justice. Now, again, it's still the heart attitude. But as we will see, it is important for the government to bear the sword. It's important for churches to come against evil people and, in fact, seek to get them to repent and to set them outside the church if that's necessary. And even there are times when there is personal insult or difficulty where we respond with a a just response. We, We don't always just simply say, well, that's okay. But the general principle in our hearts is always this, and really at a fundamental level, remember we looked at at Romans chapter 12, and really many other biblical passages, both Old and New Testament, to bring to us the idea of, of what contextually, and then what through the analogy of Scripture, what the rest of Scripture says, that it means not to resist an evil person. And we said, first, that's don't return evil for evil. At the most fundamental level, when you are harmed, when someone directly does evil towards you, our response is we want to do something evil back to them. And we're going to get them back for what they've done. And so we will respond with an evil word or an evil action. A sibling is hit by another. What do they do? They slap them back. There is is some harm done to us, and we respond back in a harmful way. People sue us. We're going to sue them. People oppress us. We're going to oppress them. And so that's our natural response. Jesus says, you may not ever return evil for evil because you are to love. Your heart response is always that they would have the best opportunity to see Christ and respond to Christ. And so no evil act will ever help someone see Christ as much as you might feel like it's going to ever, because Jesus would never, can never, did never do anything evil. So we can't return evil for evil. Remember in Romans 12, I mean, that's as far as even helps the unbeliever's conscience. It says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. And then it also says, do what is right in the sight of all men. I mean, even what would, what would generate an unbeliever's conscience to think, oh, that's not right, we are to live according to that so that we can ultimately activate their consciences so they will see their sinfulness. If you respond in evil to them, you've undone that. They see you doing evil, they go, they make excuse for theirs. That's how unbelievers work, and believers oftentimes. And we said that this is for gospel witness. We'll see that more clearly even this morning. I didn't really prove that. But we'll see scripturally that the reason you don't respond with evil is not simply moralistic. Of course we shouldn't be bad. I mean, other religions teach this, right? Don't do what is evil in response to being evil. But Jesus doesn't teach it as a moralistic teaching. We're members of the kingdom. He teaches this so that people will see the nature of who Jesus is. So they will come to Christ, so that they will glorify God in the day of visitation, as we looked at last week. So we may never return evil for evil, but also in a little different way, we may never take our own revenge. Again, that's what Romans 12 told us. That's really the picture all the way through In Matthew chapter 5, you can't seek your own justice. And what happens with this is that even though it may be, it may not be a directly sinful thing we do to someone to get our just response, our just desserts, to get to get revenge on them, which really, remember, vengeance is something God does. It's it can be righteous, a righteous response to sin. But we always get it wrong. 
because our hearts are vengeful. And so we try to get a just response. We try to get people to do what is right for us because we have been hurt and personally offended. And we may never take our own revenge. We leave room for the wrath of God. We leave room for his vengeance. He always gets the right response at the right time. He always brings the right justice to bear. He's never too early in his justice. He's never too late in his justice. And he never overlooks justice. We tend to be always too early or then too late or simply to overlook it completely. So he said, if we're going to do this, you have to forgive. There's no way you're not going to desire your own revenge if you are unforgiving. And so out of a vengeful heart, out of an unforgiving heart, you will try to exact from them a penalty and you will be sinning. We're to bear with one another, forgive each other. We also said we're going to have to trust in God's righteous judgment at the right time. Jesus, in going to the cross, says, Paul says he entrusted himself, Peter says, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. It was unrighteous that he was going to the cross in the sense of what evil men were doing to him, but he knew that God would bring justice at the right time. In fact, even through his death. And then we desire for the justice and grace of God to be poured out on a person through the work of Christ. That's what we want for them. We, if we bring our own punishments to bear, we get in the way of what God would do to bring them to Christ so that the wrath of God might be poured out on Christ and not on them. We need to wait. If they don't turn to him, ultimately when they die, the full weight of God's wrath will come to bear. And they will bear it all for eternity in hell. We don't desire this. And so we do not try to exact our own revenge. We let God do it at the right time. That's the baseline, you guys. That's where we start. No evil for evil. No revenge which means no grudges. We must forgive even in the most difficult of circumstances. That's dealing with evil people in general. And now turn your eyes back to the text. Jesus gives us the first specific example, and it is a doozy. It is a difficult one to respond to. And in fact, it's been misunderstood down throughout the ages for the very reason that it's so hard for us to do. Now he gives the example. The general principle, don't resist an evil person. It applies to all four of the examples that come. And first to this one, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, it says, turn the other to him also. It is very important that we understand this in a, its historical context. Again, remember, literal, grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. Is he talking about anyone that just walks up and, and, and bops you? Talking about someone that's really mad at you and just clocks you? Talking about abuse of a, of a husband to a wife? Absolutely not. Very specifically here, Jesus is speaking of the, the most serious kind of insult to a person's dignity. Consider this for a moment. He says... If someone slaps you on the right cheek, do you think it's important that he mentions right? I think so. For a couple of reasons, right? Sometimes the idea is just simply that that's the most important part. So that would be, you would be suffering the most indignity, the right cheek, the right hand. But in this case, most people are what? Right-handed. I'm not, it's no, no, nothing pejorative about left-handed people. It's okay. But most people are. And so I think the picture here is this. If I come up to you and I'm right-handed and I slap you on the cheek, which cheek is, am I going to hit? Your left and, and no one goes like this, right? Well, not very many people do, anyway. And so what is he talking about? He's talking about a backhanded slap. The right-handed person smacks the curved person across the cheek with a backhand. What does that mean? In any society, in any age, you're nothing. Here, insult. In fact, it, it was the greatest of insults in Jewish culture. They had varying degrees of penalty for insult. Verbal insult, one penalty. Slaps, just slap someone on the cheek, another penalty. Backhand them, that was the worst penalty that you could receive under Jewish law when it came to insult, and you would suffer the penalty for that. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's not speaking directly of physical harm. This has been so abused. You know, so Jesus does not say if someone hacks off your right arm, give him your left. 
because it would have made no sense. That would have been, hey, if someone just violates you and abuses you, you just need to stay there. It's not what he's talking about. When you are insulted, when someone gives you really the ultimate insult that you could give in Jewish culture, then you're supposed to stay in the relationship. You turn the other cheek. That is, you say, I'm sticking around, even though it means I might get more. I will stay in this relationship even though I'm insulted. As we will see, I will positively seek to make peace and the other things that are necessary. I won't abandon. I won't run because I have been harmed. Now, what's going on with an insult? And by the way, you guys know this because the, the oftentimes the, the effect of a verbal insult, because not many of you probably this week were backhanded across the face. I hope not anyway. But I'll bet many of you, or at least at some level, were insulted this week or you gave an insult. And we know that the verbal nature, the verbal slap that comes from an insult can strike hard and deep. In fact, if you think about it, which some of you unfortunately do perhaps too much, you can remember a lot of the times in your life when people insulted you and you're still angry, some of you. When, when, they, when those harsh words came against you, when that insult came, that was even worse than a slap. You would prefer to have been slapped. In fact, John MacArthur says, the Jewish, among Jews, a slap or striking on the face was among the most demeaning and contemptuous of acts. To strike someone else or anywhere else on the body might cause more physical harm, but a slap in the face was an attack on one's honor, was considered to be a terrible indignity. It was to be treated with disdain as being less than human. Even a slave would rather have been struck across the back with a whip than slapped in the face by his master's hand. Some of you have felt the weight of of, of the verbal nature, of verbal insults. It's a serious thing. People say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know that isn't true. Words strike deep into the soul. So Jesus is speaking and he's giving a physical example of something that was done in the culture and that is a deep, the deepest insult or, or assault on the human character. And that's really what's going on with an insult, isn't it? Why is it so hard to take an insult? Why do you so quickly want to respond? Because essentially, probably all of these things are happening or most of them. It's an assault on your character. For someone to insult you is to demean your character. The thing that you are, you are proud of, that you hope people will see as good that insult demeans your character. It assaults it. It assaults your value. Imagine the backhanded slap. I said, you're nothing. That verbal assault says, you're stupid. You're a fool. What is that? I mean, it assaults your very value. When someone says those kinds of things, it assaults your status. We want to be seen as having status among people and in relationship. And when they assault us this way, when they insult us, it is like taking our status from important to, to put, putting us at the lowest level. It's an assault on your reputation, is it not? Someone insults me, others hear that, or even even that person obviously thinks my reputation is bad, so that hurts. And then most often, it's an assault on relationship, isn't it? It's like someone saying, this relationship doesn't matter. I'll call you what I want. You're not even up to my level. I'll insult you and hurt you. This gets really serious. Marriages are destroyed by it. Parent-child relationships are harmed by it sometimes for their entire lives. Insults are no minor thing, and Jesus knew it. And he knew that the response, our response as kingdom citizens, has to be totally different than the world responds if we are to truly present who Jesus is, because the world does not know how to respond to insult. And unfortunately, in the church, we too often do not know how to respond to insult as well. And the world looks and says, what's the difference there? The grudges and revenge and the way people treat one another in the church seems to be no different. We're not living according to this principle. We allow insults to cause us separations in churches and in relationships for years. And we do not fix them because we don't live by this principle. 
Unfortunately, the things that this has been diluted not to be keep us from actually living out what it is supposed to be. Now, just a couple of, of other thoughts here. Well, actually, before I move to what it isn't, just this whole idea of being slapped on the cheek, the Bible does speak of it in other places and, and, and of the really of the coming underneath the kind of insult and demeaning things we've talked about. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And again, very visceral and physical here because this is the servant, Jesus. This is a, a presentation of a foreshadowing of the servant, Christ, who would come. He says, I gave my back in Isaiah 50, verse 6, to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Jesus came under and endured tremendous personal insult. And yes, also physical harm. Oh, and I don't think that's directly what's be, being spoken of in Matthew chapter 5, but, but to ultimately to where he was personally degraded in physical harm done to him. But verse 7 of Isaiah 50 says this, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. You see, even though he was suffering all these indignities and the servant, the, the one who created the very creatures that are slapping him in the face and pulling out his beard, he goes, they, they think they are disgracing me, but they aren't because God is my defender. Because ultimately in his eyes, I am protected. There is no true insult of the people or the child of God because God always views them, considers them to be valuable. He says, therefore, I'm not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. I'm going to stick this out, very similar to turn the other cheek, turn the other one to him. Lamentations 3.25, very interesting, speaks, really, it's, it's speaking of mourning over, over, the, over the destruction of Jerusalem and the difficulty there, but then Jeremiah expands this out to a spiritual principle. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. The issue there is when he's suffering great difficulty, he doesn't complain or, or strike out or respond inappropriately because God has placed this circumstance. And so the, the young man here described is to learn from it and not respond back inappropriately. He goes on to say, let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. There you have it. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. That is, not try to necessarily get out from underneath the difficulty, but to bear the difficulty of it so that it goes on to say, let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject forever. It is he who causes grief. Then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Consider this. Any insult against you, is ultimately designed by God to demonstrate his loving kindness in delivering you and strengthening you and giving you the power to look like Jesus in the middle of it. It is carefully designed for your correction, for your maturity, and for your presentation of Christ. Every insult you have ever faced is for that purpose. And that is why you can and must turn, as it were, the other cheek, offer him the other also. When someone attacks our right to dignity, we're not to defend the right by retaliation. We leave the protection and defense of our dignity in God's hands, knowing that in one day we will reign with him and in his kingdom in great glory. 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If you do something wrong, if you insult someone else, if you're harmful to them and, and they fire back at you and they harm you, and you go, oh, I can deal with that. Well, what credit is there? You sinned against them. You're still supposed to obey and honor the Lord, and you can please God, and that is no credit. I mean, Christ is not benefited particularly in that way. But he says, but when you do what is right, 
and suffer for it. Isn't that the idea of an insult? You've been doing what's right. You've been honoring the Lord, and you get this insult back in return. You weren't being evil. You're not being called out for your sinfulness. You're being insulted. You're being attacked in something that you didn't even do. But that isn't actually part of your character. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. That's the idea of turning the other cheek. You patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Now, now listen, this is so difficult. You have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer unjustly. It doesn't seem right. You're like, wait a minute. That's not, that's not why I became a Christian. I didn't come to Christ so for the very purpose of suffering unjustly. I came to have my needs met, and I came to feel good, and I, I came to have my best life, and I came all of these things that it's told that you came to Christ for. No. You came so that you might suffer like your Savior, which is unjustly. So... You've been called for this purpose, 21 of 1 Peter 2. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, your Savior's not asking you to do what he did not already do. And Jesus, in saying, turn the other cheek, we'll see that in all the, all the ways he means here, he did that. He accomplished that. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, that's the idea of turning the other cheek. You stay in the relationship. You don't abandon it. You don't respond back with evil. The, the, the baseline is that you don't respond with evil for evil, and you don't seek your own revenge. Now, before we speak to the positive side of what Jesus is saying, both here in turning the other cheek, in going the extra mile, in, in giving to those who ask of you, and giving your cloak when they sue you for your shirt, I want to mention some things that it doesn't mean to turn the other cheek. This does not mean that we would never make a defense against any insult or slander. There are times when, as believers, we would gently confront someone who continually hurls insults. So turning the other cheek doesn't ever mean that a Christian can't say, that's wrong, and you shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't mean that at all, and particularly in legal, legal senses as well, because Jesus himself, and again, we want to make sure that we don't make Scripture say things it doesn't say. Let it say what it says. Well, it doesn't contradict other Scripture. Jesus himself did not always, as it were, turn the other cheek in the definition of just giving in whenever anything wrong was done to him. There were specific reasons when he, when he just took wrong. But in, in John 18, really, in fact, when he's about to bear the brunt of all those things Isaiah 50 said, turning the other cheek in the sense that he's, he allows insults to be poured on him so that he might win the salvation of men, he's at the trial, you remember, before Annas and Caiaphas. It's in the middle of the night. It's already an illegal trial. And he, he responds at one point in this trial, and when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, by the way, that's illegal. He wasn't allowed to be struck before the verdict had been rendered. So he's already in a legal trial, and he gets struck illegally by this officer because he responded back to the high priest, who, by the way, is taking out eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth because that's what they believe. Personal vengeance right there. I'll slap you because you insulted the high priest, not because you did something legally wrong. But that's for another day, the whole message of that. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. 
Again, that is gracemarival.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.